Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 101. It's the second week of January 1988, and FAPLA's 21st, 59th and 25th Brigades have taken up the front line in what was to be a three-layered defence ahead of the Tumpo Triangle. That's where two roads joined just north of the Tumpo River. And that's east of Quito Guanabali. Behind these three brigades, 16th and 66th hunkered down in expectation of an SADF follow-up attack, which had started on the 14th of January. The 3rd Angolan line of defence was just west of the Quito River, manned by the 13th Brigade, joined by a Cuban battalion. By now, Fapla was communicating by fixed telephone line, going back to an earlier technology, which made it more difficult for the South Africans to intercept their messages. From the beginning of January 1988 to the end of March, the SADF was going to make six frontal attacks on these well-entrenched FAPLA positions, and now the generals in Pretoria were almost literally breathing down the necks of the tactical commanders. 61 Mech, Forsyth and Unita had been repulsed after taking ground. The South African troops, disgusted as they watched the land they'd fought for, being seized by Angolan units around the Chambinga high ground. The haphazard nature of the SADF's attack, part of Operation Hooper, was caused by the territory and also by a confused series of orders. After the attack on 21 Brigade, some of the recce observation teams were moved to positions between the Quito and Guanavali rivers, well behind enemy lines, to the north of Quito Guanavali itself. From here, the observers could see the airfield and the Quito bridge. The main danger for these specialists were the crocodiles. The Guanavali river teemed with them. But after some scouring of the banks, one team led by Justin Formark spotted two Makoros, or canoes made from a hollow tree trunk, and crossed over after dark. They were prepping for the next major assault, which SADF HQ had indicated was supposed to take place by the end of January, but ended up starting almost a month after their first assault on 21st Brigade. One of these strategic weaknesses plaguing the SADF now was the slow response and planning. Logistics was a big problem, hundreds of kilometres away from their main bases at Rundu and Ashukati. Eventually, Fomark and his OP team found an excellent spot behind some of Fapla's brigades and watched 21 Brigade reorganise, digging their trenches in the same area that Forsyth had freed only a few days before. The Rekis were also in a good spot to warn their 2-0 Brigade HQ back in Rundu when they spotted MiGs behind enemy lines. This would buy the South Africans a couple of minutes. They were also being warned 200 kilometres further west, Teams of Rekis under Johnny de Gouveia and Bux van der Bach were watching Menong Airport, spotting the MiGs and choppers taking off heading towards Quito Quinavali. While the Pretoria heavyweights considered Hooper, things were moving swiftly on the ground. A few days after the 14th of January, Fomark's team arrived at the OP from the bivouac and found a UNITA scout standing at their tree. He pointed eastwards and said, 21 Brigade! 21 Brigade! For Mark and another Reiki, Gary Yeff, climbed the tree and scanned the floodplain nearby, saw nothing. But the UNITA scouts said they should look more closely. Suddenly they saw dozens of Fapla troops gathered in the shade of the trees across the open plain. The Reikis called in an artillery strike, but then an argument broke out between Fomark and the artillery commander, until Sector 20's Colonel Paul Foshia butted in and ordered the artillery to fire as requested. Fomark gave the order... Gulf 9, request a full bombardment, right 4,000 metres, up 1,000 metres. The artillery commander wanted more specific information, but the Rekis didn't have time to waste. 
It looked like the entire 21 Brigade was now congregated along the edge of the plain. This is TV. I have the whole of 21 Brigade visual, for Mark radioed back. They are on foot and set up to cross. There is no time, I repeat, right 4,000 meters, up 1,000 meters. Fire on my command. For Mark was waiting for Fopler's brigade to move, and eventually it did. This is TV. They are crossing. Fire! A few seconds later, the South Africans huddled in the OP saw the trails from the mobile rocket launcher missiles approaching the spot. Chaos erupted on the grassy plain. Fopler troops tried to find protection in the long grass. Others tried to run back, but the missiles plunged into their midst. The G5 shells began landing a few seconds later, and the full bombardment was deadly, although, for Mark said later, they were not as accurate as he would have liked. A few shells fell close to the Reckies. Eight minutes after the fire command, he ordered the ceasefire. While the number of dead and wounded was unknown, the brigade had suffered a psychological blow. They couldn't move around behind their own lines without being picked off by the SADF artillery. On the other hand, morale was dented on the South African side when a 61 mech serviceman was killed in an accident. His rifle turned and dashed for cover during an air raid alert. He was crushed between an overhanging tree and the open hatch. As the rest of 2-1 Brigade dug back into the old positions along a two-kilometer north-south line, the Angolan sappers laid new minefields while 59 Brigade was busy with the same preparations further south. Every day that the SADF delayed was another few hundred mines in their path. By early February, 50 more T-54-55 tanks had rolled into their positions on the east bank of the Quito River, and by now the really dangerous threat to the SADF had begun to arrive. 50 Division, under the command of General Arnaldo Okaya Sanchez, head of Cuba's mission in Angola. The general was going to find that Fidel Castro was an extremely unforgiving taskmaster when things went wrong. Havana had had enough, as I mentioned last episode. Castro had sent his elite force from their main task of protecting his capital in Cuba all the way to southern Angola to fight against the South Africans, the 50 Division. Castro also asked Angolan President Eduardo dos Santos if his commanders could take over responsibility for defending Quito Cuanavali in a kind of classic colonial master act. Castro didn't trust the Angolans, but as you're going to hear, that wasn't going to make much difference, and poor General Sanchez was going to be a scapegoat. Not to get ahead of things, let's hear what happened next. Sanchez had the same problem that the SADF frontline commanders had, political masters far away, trying to dictate tactics. Ocoa Sanchez was following Fidel Castro's orders all the way from Havana, where the Cuban dictator had set up his war room of maps and phones, the, the works, an ops room for his own operation. Okoa Sanchez was a little confused. He was told he should not defend Quito Cuanavali at all costs, that if the situation deteriorated, then he would cover a retreat that Castro may call. But Castro had told Dos Santos there would be no retreat. Sanchez knew he was being set up telling Fidel's brother and defense minister Raul Castro that I have been sent to a lost war so that I will be blamed for the defeat. On the other hand, Pretoria was dithering. They decided eventually on January 25th that the rearming and the new plans were ready and the next target was not 21 Brigade, it was 59th. 61 Mech Lieutenant Clive Holt explained how they all knew that 59 Brigade was the key to Fopla defences. It was imperative to attack their position and destroy them, he wrote in his book, At Thy Call. Fapa's three-tank battalion was waiting in support, so this was not going to be easy. 
Because 59th Brigade was Fapla's strongest, the aim was to hit them until they collapsed. Then 21 and 25 Brigades would fall back towards the town, hopefully without too much fight left. Just to complicate matters, and as with all wars, disease was beginning to play its part. Hepatitis had struck the South Africans, and the commandants of both Forsyth and 61 Mech were suddenly laid low. Jan Milan and Kurs Liebenbach were replaced by Commandants Cassie Skuman and Mike Muller, who had returned early from his leave to take over from Liebenbach. 61 Mech was going to be the flank defence for Forsyth as they steamed into the attack on 59th Brigade. The South Africans at this point were hunkered down at their base area on the eastern side of the Chambinga high ground, about 30 kilometres from 59 Brigade's position. There they practised their drills, readying themselves for the big push, with all men fully aware that this next assault could be even more difficult than the last. The war had descended into trench warfare in many ways, a kind of mixture of Second World War battles between the Japanese and the British in places like Myanmar or Burma and the desert warfare of North Africa tanks crunching through subtropical bush, aiming at trenches. The first task for Forsyth was to crush 21 and 59 Brigade outer pickets that lay about 5 kilometres apart, then to take up their new position in dense bush on the northeastern edge of what is known as the Anhara Lepanda. That was an open area, flat, featureless, sparsely vegetated, fanning out eastwards from Quito Bridge to the Chambinga high ground. When they made it there, it would be about 13 kilometres to Quito Bridge, and they'd be able to keep Fapla's troops visible from this higher ground. Fapla commanders were not entirely sure where the next major assault would come and from whom. They had, of course, their own observers and reconnaissance units out scouting, and were helped by MiGs that flew over the SADF positions constantly. Still, when the next attack took place, it could come from three main points, the north, through the high ground itself, or the south. Mark Muller was pondering his own challenges. He had to somehow get his large and powerful force through to 59 Brigade without the Angolans cottoning on to his tank squadron, two companies of mechanized troops, two armored car squadrons, a mortar platoon, and an engineering troop on the move. Moving these without notice was going to be touch and go. Also touch and go was the hard nut known as Heartbreak Hill, which began at the crest of the Chimbinga high ground, then fell 60 meters in an almost sheer cliff to the South Africans' flank just inside the bush line at Amhara Lepanda. The cliff wasn't so much a cliff as a sheer sandy slope. The Rekis had warned that descending this was going to be tricky, and if they had to climb back up, almost impossible without winching. Towing vehicles up and down was even more difficult if there was an engine failure. The third main problem for Muller was the Angolan logistics and support. They had managed to haul a heavy mobile bridge to Quito Quanavali, which spanned the gap, left by the SAF was bombing raids. Fapla was shifting hundreds of tons of material into the town and then moving the ammunition and food to the brigades along the rivers facing the SADF. The Angolans had also trucked in a large flat-bottomed metal ferry which was useful in getting much of the supplies into place and very quickly too. So we knew we were in for a big fight, admitted Muller. The original date for this attack was the 5th of February 1988. But artillery regiment commander Jean Larsbach announced that two of his G5 guns were out of action back in South Africa being repaired. There were only 16 G5s and he already had two others unserviceable. Spare parts were in short supply. Another delay, another chance for Fapla to resupply and rearm. Digging more trenches, laying more minefields, preparing their kill zones. 
Colonel Fouchier then handed over control of 2-0 SA Brigade to Colonel Pat McLaughlin. Fouchier was needed elsewhere. He was about to form a new operational brigade, which was supposed to replace 2-0 after Operation Hooper. At the same time, the SA Air Force was not unhappy about the delay. They had been trying to move their French Cactus Cretal surface-to-air missile system to the front for added protection against the MiGs. These with 20-year-old technology and the transport systems for them suffered in the African bush. But the SADF was also deploying the seized Soviet systems, including SAM-7 shoulder-fired ground-to-air weapons and Soviet SAM-9 missiles mounted on captured BRDM-2 armored cars. The South Africans were also learning to use the ZU-23 guns, feared as they were by the Rathal squadrons, for their capacity to drill right through the armor. Time to turn these around and use them on the enemy. McLaughlin was based seven kilometers north of the Quartier River. Both Forsyth and 61 Mech moved into their positions by the early hours of February 14th. Then the men were told to get some rest. There would be none starting at dawn. Back in McLaughlin's heavily camouflaged bunker were officers from intelligence, operations, an SA medical corps doctor, a padre, and an Air Force liaison officer. Also there was highly experienced Commander Dion Ferreira. As the men of Forsyth and 61 Mech, along with their UNITA allies, rested, another important sideshow was on the go. On the 13th February, Robbie Hartsleaf's 3-2 battalion launched an artillery attack on Menong, an audacious plan to prevent Vapla planes from taking off to bomb the SADF at Quito. I'll cover what happened there next episode. Let's just say that Hartsleaf was sort of successful, although it didn't totally halt MiG attacks, as I'll explain. So by the misty first light, two SADF battalions were ready in place, joined by UNITA's professional and highly respected 3rd Regular Battalion. There was mist and fog on the ground. The MiGs would be blind. Good news for the South Africans. The Russian planes would only become a problem around midday, and at 8.45 Colonel McLaughlin gave the command to go. The SADF artillery opened up in 59th Brigade, based just off the Chambinga high ground, about halfway between Guatir and the Chambinga rivers. Two UNITA semi-regular battalions, who were in support of the 3rd, attacked 21 Brigade's outposts from the north. That was a diversion, and a highly successful one. Fapla Command believed for several more hours that the main attack against them was going to take place along the same line as the previous SADF attacks a month before. 5-9 Brigade was initially ordered to move up in support of 2-1, but they hadn't done so before the SADF's real intentions became clear. 61 Mech crunched through the bush on the high ground, leading Forsyth. They had cleared the bush north of 59 Brigade, between the two Angolan battalions, then head directly west towards 61 Kopi, that pimple of high ground that lay just outside the thicket. When they split, Forsyth with UNITA would turn south, striking 59 Brigade on their northern flank. 61 Mech had been moving since 8.45, cutting the path through the thick bush, Forsyth following three columns parallel, so they didn't get strung out. The mist began clearing at 1100. Soon the MiGs would be back. 61 Mech was taking precautions, stopping. The MiGs began dropping their parachute bombs. Mist. Rattles picked up speed once more. A cat and mouse game. It was after midday when the column reached the western edge of the Chambinga high ground, and Reckies, who had plotted the routes, guided 61 Mech towards their first main target, as Forsyth turned left, heading south with UNITA. Waiting there was 59th's three northernmost units, each comprising 400 men. 61 Mech slithered down the sandy 60-metre cliff, Heartbreak Hill, breaking cover between 59th Brigade to the south and Fapla's 21 Brigade further north, 
near the Quartier. By 1400 hours, Forsyth were further south, slightly behind 61 Meg, heading towards Fapla's battalions. Kasi Skuman's tank battalion, backed up by Ratel 90s and 20s, as well as the Ratel 81s, the mortars, made contact with Fapla's brigade at 1500 hours. Ulifant gunner Spickles to Blanche fired a 105mm shell into a 23mm anti-aircraft gun emplacement, silencing the fearful weapon. It was one of these that was going to cause havoc in the South African lines in a short while. Unita's diversionary attack on 21 Brigade to the north was also going well, timed perfectly, so that the Angolans were suddenly aware that two main attacks were going on simultaneously. This increased confusion and was going to lead to 61 Mac facing tanks in a short while. Cassie Skuman was leaping forward in 100-meter bursts, stopping, firing in concentrated arcs, reorganizing, moving forward. Another T-55 was shot out in the bush, then one of the Olifants had what was known as a cook-off. Its own 105mm shell blew up in its barrel, leaving the long metal shaft a blackened stump. Fortunately, no one hurt. The tank limped to the rear, its action over. Now Forsyth arrived at Fapla's main bunkers and trenches. Some of 59 Brigade began to flee, others died fighting the South Africans. Within minutes, it was clear that the Brigade HQ had also fled on their way to Tumpo Triangle, about 10 kilometers to the west. The Angolans were trying to stem the tide and ordered their 3rd Tank Battalion to head southeast and link up with 25 Brigade, based on the edge of the Chambinga high ground, far to the south overlooking the Chambinga and Hubei rivers. The tank battalion had begun to move south, then turned north, aiming at Forsyth's infantry and rattles. They wanted to hit the South Africans from the tree line on the edge of the Anhara Lepanda. The Rekis spotted this movement and warned Muller about what was happening. So he turned south to face this threat, leaving behind a flank force of one armoured car squadron and a company of mechanised infantry. He had travelled about two kilometres just inside the bush when they arrived at Ashona, a dip of open ground which intruded east to west into the tree line, and around a kilometre wide. This was dangerous open ground. The light was fading, 1700 hours 30, and Muller had the invidious situation of rushing over the Shona, exposing his men to a combined force of both Fapla's 3rd Battalion and 25 Brigade. What was going to make this battle even more threatening is that many Cubans were now far more active on board the tanks, both as drivers and commanders. They were far better trained than the Angolans, and this was going to cost the South Africans. As Forsyth Rattles poked around doing some observations, they didn't realize that 3rd Tank Battalion was aiming at their western flank. Still, Muller took the usual firebelt drill action, all weapons pointed at a most threatening-looking section of bush ahead through the open shauna, and lo and behold, two enemy observers fell out of the trees. They were Cubans. Muller had seconds to react. He suddenly understood that 59 Brigade was retreating towards Tumpo, so he gunned his rattle and gave orders for his column to move into battle formation into the Shona, tanks in front, rattle mounted infantry and rattle 90s on the flank, rattle 81mm mortar machines in the centre, his command rattle just behind the tanks, in what is known as the basic arrowhead attack formation. Holt was in one of the rattles and describes the moment it was quite late by now, the evening shadows were lengthening. We were crossing the Shona and feeling very vulnerable, so we tried to get into the bush line on the far side as quickly as possible to avoid being taken out. But that was playing somewhat into the Cubans' hands. One of the commanders on Fapla's side had a clever ambush in mind, as you'll hear. The Ulifant tanks began taking out the enemy tanks. At least one was burning and exploding as the rattles plunged into the bush on the other side of the Shona, lighting up the evening sky. 
They were now barely 50 meters inside the opposite line of bush when the first tanks appeared, and that's when 61 Mech Tank Commander Captain Christo de Blanche noticed the ambush T-55. It was parked hull down in deep bush at right angles to the South African line of advance, clearly aiming to hit the SADF mechanized vehicles from the side. It had lurked there quietly and safely because I had ordered my 881mm mortar crews to lob their bombs 1,000 meters into the southern bush line, where my intelligence team estimated 59 Brigade to be fleeing west, said Muller later in an interview with author Fred Bridgeland. The Cuban tank commander had realized that the SADF was going to deploy the arrowhead formation, so he allowed the tanks past. Then he'd aim at the rattle immediately behind in the center of this formation. That would be where the South African mechanized commander was. The command group plunged into the bush, missing the tank completely, when it suddenly burst into gear and rushed towards the mechanized column at high speed, its commander standing with his head through the open hatch in the turret. This caught the rattles off guard. They could not reverse in time. De Blanche jumped off his tank and rushed towards the enemy tank with a hand grenade, hoping to drop it through an open hatch. That didn't work. He had to die for cover because his own men had opened up with their 20mm guns pinging off the tank armor. De Blanche ran back, asking for an R4 rifle. As he turned with his weapon, he saw that a gunner in a nearby tank had taken out the Cuban, who also popped out to shoot De Blanche. Chaos in the African bush. The light was fading. As the commander slumped dead, the tank fired around, taking out a rattle rear axle, one of the tricks Fopler had learned over the years in dealing with this highly mobile South African vehicle. Two other Ulifan tanks then arrived and destroyed the T-55. The carnage was not over, and the South Africans were about to suffer a terrible incident. More about that next episode. Please read the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, Fuss Bait.